Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Daniel Nia, author of the new novel, Take No Names. Book Page Magazine wrote about the novel, Take No Names is a blast from start to finish. Nia maintains a steady balance of humor, action, and thrills while making some barbed commentary on American capitalism and Chinese globalization. Halfway through what starts as a Joe R. Lansdale-esque crime thriller morphs into an espionage caper a la Mission Impossible. If it sounds a bit over the top, it is, but that's what makes Take No Name such an irrepressibly fun read. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your novel, Take No Names, how would you describe the novel? Well, gosh, I'm still working on a succinct answer to that question. Um, <laughs> maybe that's why, it, I don't know, I'm a, I, maybe I'm a little proud of that. I feel like it's not totally, okay, elevator pitch. I mean, it's a it's a heist thriller, you know? Um, so I think that I'm overall, you know, writing with that page turner in mind, that feeling of, you know, whether you're wide awake or on a plane or on a beach or, you know, on the subway that, that you just want to keep going and, and read the next page. Um, and, in, you know, with the heist element in particular, um, that whole thing about assembling the team, um, and, um, you know, like, uh, solving puzzles. Um, I, I really enjoy those playing with those formulas of genre, um, mm -hmm. and tinkering with them a little bit. At the same time, I think the other main sort of subgenre that I'm drawing on uh, in crafting this book is the the buddy buddy story that odd couple where they're, when they're stuck together. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like Midnight Run is a great film example of that, or um, a book like um, uh, the uh, oh, it's escaping me right now, um, City of Thieves by David Benioff, I think is a really good example of that in, in recent fiction. But basically, you know, the premise is these two guys who are uh, kind of on the fringes of society um, working as, uh, as security consultants and small-time grifters, they find this gem and they have to sell it and they have to travel across borders and between languages and cross paths with shadowy international interests in order to sell this gemstone. And that's the setup for the story. And I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Take No Names? Well, Take No Names is a sequel to my first novel, Beijing Payback. And they're not, they stand alone, but the impetus is really, okay, well, what happened to Victor Lee after the events of Beijing Payback? So they have the same protagonist. They have different antagonists. So it's not a saga like sort of Hunger Games style where you need to read them in order and they, you know, there's there's one big sort of epic battle going on throughout. This is kind of episode two of Victor Lee and the story of Victor Lee and his sister, Juliana Lee. So I don't think that um, it had a separate impetus, even though it's a standalone separate story. But mm -hmm. when I go all the way back to Beijing Payback, it was that same thing. You know, I really wanted to write a page turner. I wanted to write something fun that also captured the distinctive contemporary globalized world that 
I experience is my reality. So, you know, Beijing Payback, it travels between the United States and China. And Take No Names really travels between the United States and specifically, you know, Chinatown in, in Seattle down to Mexico City. But when I go all the way back to the beginning of Beijing Payback, that novel had this kernel. The dramatic idea at the center of it is a time capsule, which is like a letter, like a scavenger hunt. So a letter from the past. And I had, I remember I was living in Beijing. This was in the late 2000s. And a friend and I were playing with our digital camera. This was right at the beginning of the smartphone era. We didn't have smartphones. We were playing with our old Canon Elf digital camera and mm -hmm. filming video messages. And the idea of the video messages that we were filming is that they were messages to the future. So that we thought we were 25 years old. Let's leave these messages for our grandchildren and they can watch them when they're 25. And we were having all kinds of fun with it. I don't think I even have these video files anymore. But I remember <laughs> lying in bed that night afterwards and thinking about that idea and thinking, what if you got a message like that, but it wasn't fun and cute and sentimental. It was like, you know, you're getting this message because I've been murdered and there's something you need to know and there's something I'd like you to do. So that's the narrative conceit of Beijing Payback is that, you know, Victor Lee and Juliana Lee, these two siblings with a Chinese dad and a, a Caucasian white mom in the suburbs of Southern California, of, of Los Angeles and the San Gabriel Valley, growing up in this relatively sheltered existence, their father is killed. And then in the wake of his death, they get this message from him that, that includes instructions. And after that, it plays out in this revenge thriller combined with coming of age kind of story that brings them from their sheltered existence in Southern California to Beijing, the underworld of Beijing, and the, the shadowy world of international commerce and smuggling and crime. And that's Beijing Payback. And then Take No Names really starts with the aftermath. So Victor Lee is living underground in Chinatown in Seattle. He's not in LA anymore. He's also not in Beijing anymore. He's wanted for a crime he did not commit. And he's facing, you know, the cops are looking for him. He's 22 years old and he's feeling, you know, very cynical. And then, you know, he joins a gym. He's trying to learn how to fight. He's trying to learn how to defend himself in this cold, unfair, noirish reality that he finds himself in. His sister's calling him on the phone saying, you know, Victor, you need to turn yourself in, face court. Even if you go to jail, you can get your name back. He's saying, you know, I don't want that. It's not fair. Um, I'm going to keep running. And then at the gym, he meets this guy, Mark, Mark Knox. Mark Knox is a is a Iraq war vet with uh, physical and intellectual disabilities who is a security consultant, kind of a small time grifter. And Mark recruits Victor into this scheme where they rob storage units and in the storage unit, they find the gem. So that's kind of the setup for the plot of Take No Names. And, and like I said, it doesn't really require reading Beijing Payback um, to jump into the book. I think, you know, the completionists out there, um, who like to do things in order will will enjoy Beijing Payback <laughs> because Take No Names definitely, you know, spoils the plot of Beijing Payback. But Victor Lee is is wanted for a crime he didn't commit as a setup and he's he's in Seattle and that's where the book starts. Well, I'm curious about um, your writing prior to Beijing Payback. Was that the first novel that you had ever 
um, sat down to write and yes, it was. Yeah. Um, I think my path to writing was, uh, not the most common. I never did uh, MFA. I did study creative writing kind of like took a couple nonfiction classes in college and I wanted originally to be a journalist. And, um, then I started studying the Chinese language and I realized, you know, I had, um, opportunity to, to do that kind of travel and work as a translator and interpreter. So I lived in China for some years um, and then I moved back to the States. And um, what I wanted was to write a novel all along. I never wrote short stories. I never did an MFA. I just wanted to be a novelist. I, I think I wanted that since I was like eight years old. I was a kid who just devoured novels and of all different genres and I read at recess. I got in trouble for reading at recess in the third grade. It was like, <laughs> dude, play with the other kids. And I said, no, teacher, I would like to continue reading my novel. And they were like, okay, that's not, you know, and I don't know if they were right or wrong to, to punish me for that or encourage me to not do that. But that's what I wanted. I just wanted to escape into stories. I think it had something to do with moving around a lot as a kid and like having a lot of different environments and new people and saying goodbye to friends. And I don't know, I just had like a strong, I remember my mom telling me, if you can read, you will never be bored. And that's kind of, you know, I just always had a book. So, sure. you know, right. So, anyway, the question I guess you asked was about writing prior to Beijing Payback. I wrote a lot of translations. I translated mm -hmm. some fiction, but a lot of art criticism um, because that was a good market niche for my skill set as a translator and because there was a lot of demand. Uh, the Chinese art world, contemporary art world was very hot. Galleries and museums were coming out with critical essays about Chinese art and they would generate them in Chinese and then they would publish catalogs in both languages. So, I would translate that from Chinese to English. So, I think that that work helped me get good at, um, you know, picking the right word um, to express an idea. I felt like I was a strong writer at the sentence level from that. And I had written for my college newspaper and that kind of thing, but I had sure. no fiction writing experience. I mean, I'd written like one or two short stories ever that no one ever saw. And I sat down and I thought, you know, I want to write a novel that goes from the United States to, to China. And I had that idea, like I mentioned, the idea of the scavenger right. hunt, the letter from the past. And, and I took it took me six years. You know, I was just I finished a draft in three years, and I showed people, and I showed people, and I showed people, and I was bad. <laughs> I was very bad at it. <laughs> and people told me the things that I needed to do to improve, and that's how I I got to the end of Beijing Payback. And and what was what was that process like for you of of um, kind of editing based on that feedback? Well, I didn't know what I wasn't good at at that mm -hmm. point. I thought. I know I felt confident in my ability to write sentences and voice and character dialogue. And because those were the things that I read for. So I thought that, oh, I'm probably pretty good at novels because I know what I like and I think I can do that part. And I hadn't thought that much about story and plot. Mm -hmm. um, I hadn't thought that much about world. But there's all these things, you know, I didn't know how to write a chapter. I just felt like I knew how to write a sentence. Right. So it's hard. And it, it's one of the beautiful things about writing is that if you've got an ego, you're going to come to terms with it. And so, yeah, getting feedback. I think one thing I learned was to I'd ask like uh, five people at once for feedback. So, I'd finish a draft. I sent it to five people. And if one person just really didn't like something, it's like, well, 
everyone else is kind of okay with that. And, you know, cause I'm, I'm very impressionable. <laughs> like I think someone can easily shift what I think is something, especially if it's my own writing. It's like, I don't, at that phase, you know, when I had never published anything, I thought, well, gosh, this person is probably right. Whether these four people say something else. So I kind of get like that, you know, scattershot approach and see where I see trends where the Venn diagrams or the criticism overlap. Right. And then, um, feel awful for a day and then the next day feel better and then the next day go back to work. And I'm curious what, I mean, you've talked about it, um, uh, in, in this conversation, but I'm, I'm just curious in working on Beijing payback and then take no names. Um, what was your process in terms of like the plotting and the overall structure? Are you someone who outlined or did you just kind of dive into the narrative yeah, I uh, <laughs> I outline so much. It's one of my main procrastination tools is to just outline, outline, outline. And it's the same thing as my actual life is like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I've got like a, always got a 10 year plan and it changes like every <laughs> Thursday. <laughs> just, and I know that it's not like I'm like, okay, it's set now. It's just like, I don't know. Um, people who are into astrology tell me this is typical Capricorn behavior. Um, and, uh, I'm not sure I believe that, but I definitely believe that it's typical Daniel behavior, which is just, I love having a plan. I accept that it's a security blanket for me. And personally, I do believe the thing that I think a lot of authors say, which is if you know where the story ends when you start, um, it's not very fun. I think it's fun to let the characters, it just sounds so like cringy, corny to me, but I really believe it that. The, the characters do feel alive to me and that they kind of mm -hmm. tell me where they need to go. Um, you put them in the room and I can't tell them what they're going to do. I really do feel like they have to be consistent as people and characters and their flaws. They can't do something that they wouldn't do. And so the way they interact, that causes the story to evolve. And so, yeah, there's an outline. There's a graveyard of outlines. <laughs> there's, so, there's so many outlines, Jeff. And, um, and none of them bear out, you know, it's always in a constant state of flux. That's great. Well, what was the path to publication? I think you said it was kind of six years for you to work on Beijing payback to get it to a point where, um, uh, I guess you thought it was publishable. Um, how was it, um, the process to, to find a publisher? I was extremely fortunate. I, as I mentioned, I'd never did an MFA. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I wrote the novel, I wrote three drafts and then I showed it to an agent who was a, a agent of a, of a friend of mine, uh, a writer I met and who is helping me with the drafts. And then that agent, um, who's thank you, Bonnie Nadell. If you're, <laughs> if you ever listen to this, I have a fantastic agent and she was like, this is, this needs a lot of work. Like, are you dedicated? And I was like, what are you talking about? This is done, you know, like send me my check. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, that was like a good three or four years after that, like Bonnie read draft three and draft five and draft seven. So I was just going through and I was working, you know, I was interpreting and translating. So I was probably right. doing two drafts a year, big full rewrites and in the gaps between translating these art essays, um, this job, the other job I was interpreting for the state department. So I would go away for three weeks and, um, escort 
a delegation of Chinese dignitaries around the country, and then I'd come home and write for three weeks and go out again. And um, I always thought I was farther along than I was. But when you know Bonnie was so patient, and I don't—I've never had another agent, but I'm told that not not many agents edit this much. So she helped me. She knew what she was doing. And then by draft eight, she was like, "I will submit this to publishers. Don't get your hopes up." <laughs> and um, and you know, we might hear something within a couple of weeks. I'm submitting it to like you know, eight ten people, and um, and if you know if we don't hear anything, we'll revise again and we'll get more feedback. And uh, that was like a Thursday, and on Friday there was a snowstorm in New York, and um. On Sunday, I had emails from Bonnie being like, "These three editors want to talk to you on the phone." On Monday, I had three phone calls what? with editors um, at different uh, um, different imprints, and by the end of the day, I had a two book deal for Beijing Payback and for the sequel. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That's amazing. Well, are you working on another novel now? Yeah, I am. I'm... I'm committed to farming right now. <laughs> uh, like, it's like I'm planting all the seeds. The seeds are planted, actually. You know, it's like the, I got all the notebooks, just like all the outlines. Like, there's digital notebooks. There's notebooks on my phone. There's, like, paper everywhere. And there's all the little, you know, I'm just tending all the seeds. And I'm kind of seeing, I'm dancing with a lot of ideas and kind of seeing what's going to be the form of the third one. Because I got like too many ideas and I'm in the midst of promoting Take No Names still. I just came back from, um, you know, a book festival. I got another one coming up and it's super fun, but it's the opposite of the writing mind. I'm, sh- you know, right. I'm sure a zillion writers have told you this on the podcast. You're like, you're out promoting a book, you're taking phone calls, you know, you're talking to people and answering emails and it's very fun to get out of the cave, but it's very hard to also sit down and have that long, deep, you know, humpback whale attention span to to write prose. And I'm so admiring of those writers who are like, oh, yeah, I write, you know, I write on the planes, I write in the hotel rooms, I write in the bathroom. Like, oh, my God, I I worship you, but I need my, like, <laughs> routines. And, and I'm, for me, I'm still writing every morning, but in terms of committing to that novelistic world, it's really nice to have a break from feeling the obligation to generate X number of pages right now. Because I had, like I mentioned, I had a two-book deal for Take No Names for the sequel, sure. Beijing Payback. So, I wrote that on a deadline during the pandemic. And that was a very new experience for me to be like, this is my full-time thing and I have to do it by a certain time period. So, now that's out in the world, I'm super excited to write a third. I feel like writing the second is like the process of writing the second. I really learned what I was doing. The first one, I was just kind of feeling my way in the dark. But I also, I do have other... Um, responsibilities and other work that I do that I really enjoy. I, I don't really plan to follow in that sort of, you know, typical thriller author, like pumping out a book every six months or, you know, every 18 months. 
I really enjoy living my life and having adventures, being out in the world. I, I love jobs. I have many jobs, <laughs> none of them very lucrative. And, um, and I, I really look forward to actually having that time once I'm done with this promotion or the majority of this promotion phase to like really dive into the next one. But I think of it now as like, you can't look right at it. Um, the next novel to me is like, let it grow, you know, put the water in the earth, put the fertilizer in there. Don't, don't let it wither on the vine, but don't look right at it. And then I will know which of these, I'm really torturing this metaphor here, Jeff. <laughs> like I, I will know which of these tomatoes is going to be the tomato of my next novel. <laughs> That's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own novels? My writing advice is, first of all, read writing advice. That's my writing advice. That works really well for me. I read On Writing by um, a dozen of, of authors. Uh, I mean, Stephen King's is really good. You know, Walter Mosley, This Year You Write Your Novel is a great one. I've got right in front of me, my microphone is sitting on a stack of books. I'm just looking. Every Day Word Surprises Me is a great little volume of writing advice. Um, I feel like it's one – okay, so there's this uh, expression. I believe it's um, – from an indigenous nation of, of this continent, which is that knowledge is a rumor until it lives in the muscle. So you may know, okay, I need to be patient. It takes more time that I blah, 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 you know, keep your head in long, in long vision and don't blah, blah, blah. All these things that you think you know, I find it helpful for me to drill them in all the time because noveling, writing novel, noveling, noveling is a, <laughs> you know, it's a B. To, you know what I'm saying? Like it is, it is not, a walk in the park. And if you want to strap in and do it, like fill your tool shed, fill your tool belt with tools, you know, fill your house with tool belts and then wear all the belts at once, strap in and do that thing. Um, and then I think the big other one is like, don't be afraid of doing bad work. You know, like if you're, if you're trying to write a novel, you're here because you love novels, you have good taste. It's easier to have good taste than to do good writing because reading, we have way more practice reading than writing. So you have to do writing and just spew it out and do it longhand if you like that. I love writing with a pen and paper and get it out there, work it, rework it. You know, I recently heard a couple authors talking about reading early drafts of Anna Karenina and it was like crappy. <laughs> it was really bad. <laughs> I can't remember what the original title that, um, that Tolstoy had for it uh, was, but it was like pretty, it was like a pretty bad title. And it's like, just remember that like everything starts or I've heard, you know, I love the Beatles and you can hear their early studio recordings of these songs that are so perfect, like so well executed. And they're like, oh, that doesn't sound good at all. You know, and like <laughs> everyone, everyone, even the Tolstoys and the John Lennons, they had bad stuff before the good stuff. So yep. yeah, just whatever, nose to the grindstone. That's kind of, you know, that's kind of it. That's great. Well, what uh, novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I think that um, the best book, the book that I've been recommending left and right that I read a few months ago is Piranesi by Susanna Clark. Have you read that one? I have not. Nope, not yet. So that's a genre. Um, I You know, I love thrillers, but I really love people who play with genre and that's kind of my mm -hmm. main inspiration is to play with genre rather than to like really live in genre. And I think so Piranesi by Susanna Clark is 
uh, speculative fiction, I guess. Um, it's definitely not, you know, realism. Um, but you know, it's, it's very literary It's an unforgettable voice and characters and, um, has that perfect, like, I don't like the word perfect, right? I mean, it's, you know, 75,000 words probably. So nothing's perfect, but it's, um, it's so well done. I just recommend it left and right. So I really recommend that one. Piranesi, uh, city of thieves. I actually read after I wrote my book. Um, but I mentioned it earlier. I feel like that's another one where David Benioff, um, the author is playing with genre. It's kind of a war book. It's kind of that buddy story that I mentioned, that odd couple that's tied together on a quest. And it's set. I, I laughed and cried. I'm currently reading The Hero of This Book by Elizabeth McCracken, that I, mm-hmm. um, an author I really love, who I think is, I don't think I laugh that much when I read, even when people are like, this is so funny. I'm like, ah, it's funny. I'm entertained. I'm amused. But like laugh out loud funny is really rare for me. And Elizabeth Elizabeth McCracken is an author who really makes me laugh out loud. I really loved her short stories, which I also just read for the first time last year. So now I'm reading her her new novel, The Hero of This Book. And it's, it's very touching uh, and also very funny. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? I got a website. Um, it's danielnia.net. And I think, you know, um, my my poison of choice in terms of social media is Instagram. So that's the one I use the most. I use Twitter just kind of to publicize stuff. So um, yeah, I guess mainly, you know, Instagram or email me. It's on my website. And I'm definitely, I'm a, an interactive type author. I don't live in, um, you know, a hut in the woods yet. I think maybe in in 10, 15 years, I'm going to build that hut. But for now, I'm like, please talk to me about my work. It's, I love talking about books. Uh, I could probably, you know, do your podcast once a week. Um, so let me know if, <laughs> if uh, more spots open up. But I just, that you know, I love good. talking about books and writing. And if anyone wants to hit me up um, and uh, say, say mean things about my novel, then um, <laughs> I'm down for it. I'll buy you ice cream. Let's do it. That sounds great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Daniel Nia, author of the new novel, Take No Names. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Daniel, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks, Jeff, so much for having me. Absolutely. A habit established without discussion. Mark Knox and I sit in silence for several seconds before we exit the van. For me, a moment to steal my nerves. Fear takes up its proper position inside my ribcage, and my senses awaken to the night. The spit of the rain in the yellow headlights the steady pit-pat as it drums on the roof, the sour odor of the van's mildewed upholstery. As for my employer, I don't know what goes through his head. Maybe Mark is like me, saying a prayer for a good haul and muttering his gratitude for some work to do on a Friday night. Or maybe he's just waiting for Ty, the guy we bribe for parking, to emerge from his single wide. The door of the trailer cracks open, and Ty sticks his head out. I'm mad. Mark whispers, you're Dave. I make my eyes big like, duh. I screwed up the fake names once, and now he never fails to remind me. We hop out of the van, sling our backpacks over our shoulders. Mark ascends the three steps to the door of Ty's trailer. I hang back. My man, Matt! Ty proffers his fist. Mark leans against the side of the trailer, taps Ty's fist with his own, and palms him a $10 bill. Ty tucks the ten into the breast pocket of his blazer. Still in uniform, 
he must have had to work late. The three of us tip our heads back in unison as a passenger jet roars overhead, rending the air with twin six-ton engines. The world feels changed once it's gone. The unseen throngs of crickets and chorus frogs chastened into silence. Ty glances at his watch. Delta Red Eye to Newark. That's a Dreamliner. Y'all want rolls? Mark grins as he produces five more dollars from his rain pants. Ty works as a concierge at the Visa Crown Elite Lounge, where Obsidian cardholders are served the same defrosted croissants every day until they're gone. But at the Cinnabon in Terminal 3, where his girlfriend cashiers, day-olds go home with the staff. Ty pockets the five, disappears for a moment, and then reappears holding a plastic bag. There's extra icing in there, he hands the bag to Mark. My man, Mark says. You good, Dave? Hi, Ty, I say. Lot of new tents out there. Mark jerks his head back toward the entrance. Ty's lips press into a tight line, and he shakes his head ruefully. Land of the free. Well, good luck, my dudes. Bag mucho amphibians. He salutes us with two fingers and pulls his door shut. Mark puts the cinnamon rolls in the van, and then we set out through the rain navigating the puddles in the potholed pathway between the netless tennis court and the empty pool, making our way toward the reservoir behind the mobile home park. Six rolls for five bucks, Mark says, scanning the cloud layer for upwind gaps. That's like 15 calories a cent. Diabetes can add up, I say. Mark chuckles and says, We need happy tie. We skirt the muddy banks of the reservoir, trace the chain-link fence to where it vanishes into a thicket of blackberry bushes. Then the work gloves and headlamps come out of our backpacks. Peering into the darkness that surrounds us, I seek signs of others out roaming the night, but we're alone. So I click on my headlamp in red light mode and pull aside the thorny vines that hide our tunnel through the thicket. Mark crawls in first. I follow behind. The bushes have grown since we last cut them back. And for the final several feet of the tunnel, on the other side of the hole in the chain-link fence, we're wriggling forward on our elbows and bellies. Think maybe we should trim again? I clamber to my feet on the other side. We've only got a couple trips left, Mark reminds me. We're standing in the corner of a large field, its soggy expanse arrayed with a grid of shipping containers listing in the mud. Hull-secure facilities, or as we call it, the lost and found. Mark shucks his backpack to the ground in front of the nearest shipping container. Kneeling next to him, I knit my fingers together and boost him onto the top. After I've passed up both backpacks, I grasp his hands and launch myself upward, and he heaves me onto the container beside him. The first thing I do is check for our two-by-fours, right here where we left them. Then I follow Mark's gaze to the cottage on the hill at the far end of the lost and found. A light glows in one window. Jerry's up late, I say, glancing at my watch. A black rubber Casio I found among Dad's things after his murder. Ten minutes to midnight. Mark narrows his eyes at the cottage. The window flickers. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.